This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. With Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. And thank you to our special sponsors, Iris Software, iris.co.uk. Martin, you saw a great video just recently from Iris, didn't you? Yeah, what I think people don't understand about Iris is they were ahead of the game for MTD Phase 1 because they were the first software vendor to be listed as approved by the HMRC for MTD filing. And guess what? They're fully prepared for the next. So they've got an MTD webinar on demand that you can catch up with at any time. Rob, where do they go to to see this? It's iris.co.uk forward slash MTD webinar. That stands for making tax digital for our international listeners. And there's some great stuff there that you need to know to guide you through the whole Making Tax Digital initiative. So iris.co.uk forward slash MTD webinar. Right, Martin? That's right. So wherever you are in your journey, Iris know that they have the knowledge and tools to help you in the next steps. That's iris.co.uk forward slash MTD webinar. Welcome to the Accounting Influencers Podcast. It's another action-packed Monday show. We've got a lot lined up for our wonderful listeners all over the world today, Martin. We have. I've never known an episode of this show that isn't action-packed. And we start with the news, as always. And this week, we take a look at the top five challenges that the profession has adapted to over 2021, and they now go forward in 2022. This is a great piece from the uh, Institute of Financial Accountants, the IFA, who have done a fairly wide research study to find what firms have got to grips with in 2021 and are going to really profit from in 2022. Super. And after that, we've got an interview with Jeremy Hyman. He runs Jeremy Hyman Associates and He's talking about how accounting firms make strategic technology decisions. There's a lot of spend at stake, isn't there, Martin? And the vendors will tell us this, that uh, when an accounting firm has decisions to make, there's a lot they need to consider. Oh, absolutely. There is a lot of work to do to get the eyeballs on your solution in the first place. And we go from there to the here's what works section. And in the here's what works, have you ever had a situation where you didn't want to be the cheapest? But you claim that when you don't win the work, that the prospect has gone to the cheapest accountants. So how does that work? How can the cheapest accountants always win the work, yet you never win the work because you were the cheapest? Well, price sensitivity is a massive issue in the profession and has been for years. And we're going to show you how to overcome it. Yes. And to finish off, we have an interview with Bill Reeb and Tommy Barry of the Succession Institute over there in the United States. People development is such a big topic at the moment. Where's the talent coming from? How do we recruit and retain? The Accounting and Influences these guys Podcast. Have been doing this through this. They've got some amazing the stuff very on best interviews, insights, and, and wisdom. From the planet's most influential people in the accounting and fintech world. The Accounting Influences Podcast. So it's time for the news. We won't be running this forever, Martin, this new segment, because we found that very little changes, there's very little new in the accounting and fintech world that we could report on any better than some of the media outlets. But you pick something out today that's caught your eye. Yeah, absolutely. This comes from Accountancy Age. Um, It is authored by the Institute of Financial Accountants, the IFA, who I think will have something of the order of a couple of thousand members, if not significantly more than that. And what they did, uh, Ravi, interestingly, is they took a a look back at 2021 and then look forward as to how they feel that the profession has adapted to change and uncertainty caused by COVID and Brexit uh, over the last two years. And they come up with some interesting conclusions here that I'd like to outline for our listeners, if I may. I'd like to hear them because accountants uh, and accountancy as a profession is not generally known for its 
ability to change and adapt and be agile, I suppose we would call it. Generally, legislation is what causes change in, in accountancy. Uh, when the regulation changes... Regulatory pressures. Yeah, absolutely. So the article reads that as the year is drawing to a close, there is a growing expectation that many temporary adaptations made throughout the uh, last two years will now become embedded in long-term business operations. So we made a temporary fix, and it's turned out to be the long-term fix. This, they claim, has resulted in the changing face of many business practices and the pivoting of services in order to survive. Guys, listen to that phrase, in order to survive, not thrive, survive. Now, I don't know if that's sensationalist reporting, but it's an interesting choice of words. So they, they have some seg- sections here, which I think um, four or five sections, and here they are in summary format. The post-Brexit outlook. Now, for our international listeners, I'm sure you're aware of what Brexit is, and you've probably already seen the impact of Brexit. Uh, on many of your clients' businesses. But the conclusion they make on what's there, we're, we're past Brexit now, Brexit has happened, uh, the changes have been forced, you know, the UK, United Kingdom has left the European Union, we are living in the post-Brexit world. They are saying that based on their research, evidently the UK's exit from the EU has created necessary demand and opportunities for practice outside of its borders. In other words, businesses are asking accountants, how do I do business in Germany now? How do I do business in France now? My biggest client is in Lisbon. How do I avoid what used to take three days now taking three to four months due to bureaucracy I've got to step through? So now there's an international consulting angle for accountants. And that's where networks and associations, of course, uh, come in handy. That's why many firms are members of international or global networks, because that one phone call to the Lisbon office to find out the answer. That cross-border collaboration and international trade, yes. The next one of their five was digital tech, which is a subject we'd expect to come up regularly. Their conclusion summary is, this digital shift is not just being seen through more and more services moving online, obviously we know the move to the cloud has been going on for many years, but also via knowledge sharing through conferences, board meetings, and meetups. There is, they claim, an ever-growing appetite for smaller, more manageable chunks of practical advice and training, reflecting an increased need for real-world, up-to-date advice. So what they're saying here, Rob, is the days of the week-long training course or the day-long training course is in the past, and can you now give us a 10-minute update? Can that be the training this week? It's the lunchtime learning thing, isn't it? Yes. And I know that in the US, uh, certain CPA societies statewide, CPA societies did start to certify a micro CPE learning in 10 minute chunks rather than 50 minute chunks. Uh, certain years, several years ago, for, again, seeing this move some time ago. It's the microwave culture we live in, isn't it, Martin? We want things fast. We want it now. Yeah, boil it down to its absolute base and give it me now. Legislation is their third from five. And of course, this is, this is quite technical and we steer clear generally on the podcast of the heavily technical stuff. But basically their findings here are new legislation has come into force. So accountants have had to tackle making tax digital version two, IR35 changes, that's specific to the UK guys, post-Brexit sanctions, trading changes, tax reverse charges, to name but a few. So there's there's been a huge amount of adaptation required on legislation just to stay current and just to keep their clients compliant. And when that happens, of course, we know that that lessens the bandwidth for innovation. And this will be happening in North America, Australia, in other countries where our listenership is big. It's all over the place. Well, you make a good point there, actually, because uh, in the, the practitioner group meeting that we had yesterday, our Canadian member said, it's interesting listening to this because uh, we were reporting on this sort of information because this is an absolute mirror of what's happening in Canada as well. So they're the fourth from fifth, their penultimate one. 
was money laundering and fraud. And their conclusion is that the pandemic has led to an increase in the delivery of services via remote methods, such as cloud accounting. Uh, and this potentially, and that's the disclaimer, places practic practices at a higher risk. There is also an expanding threat, they claim, brought by Chinese underground banking, would you believe, Rob, with, with the IFA urging accountants to regularly review their clients and firm-wide risk assessments because of the difficulty, obviously, of being able to account for some transactions. That cybersecurity is a massive opportunity for accountants, isn't it? Both getting their own FEBs in order, but helping their clients navigate the murky waters of international and remote business. Absolutely. And I imagine, Rob, as well, that if, if um, the Institute of Financial Accountants who, who produce this report for Accountancy Age, if they gave you and me three guesses as to what the fifth item was, neither of us would get it with three guesses each. Is it quiz time? Oh, you, it is quiz time. What is the fifth major issue facing the profession according to this report, Rob? Woo, digitization, modernization, recruitment, retention. Uh, we've, we've done regulation. Tell me. It, it, those are many of the guesses I would have had too. This one's out of left field. Climate change. Oh, in, environmental social governance. Well, and more. So they, they report here to say, as 2022 opens, one thing now placed at the top of everyone's agenda, and I would question the use of everyone there, but you know, generally speaking, is tackling climate change as businesses, not accountants, businesses focus more on their impact on society and the environment. And the accounting profession faces new demands to play its part. This also presents another opportunity for the sector as accountants can be very well placed to help SMEs complete complex calculations and identify their business's climate impact. Wow, that's massive. And I, be I do believe, actually, at this point in time, I've just, I just had a, a thought come into mind. I believe there's a business, and please let us know if it's you that I'm referring to, there is a business that is purely in the business of helping accountants build calculators for their clients on their uh, CO2 emissions and, and impact on climate change. There's actually a business that does that, if I'm not mistaken. It's actually becoming a burning platform, this climate thing, carbon neutraling and everything else. We've recently had the big world summit in Glasgow that happened at the end of last year where all the world leaders got together, talked about what they would do and doing nothing, hopefully came out as not being an option. But accountants standing in the gap there of everything the governments are talking about and the world leaders and what needs to be implemented with these businesses on the ground, they are the trusted advisor, aren't they? Yeah, and that was the COP26. And what interests me there, I mean, I love the fact that you used uh, the phrase burning platform to talk about climate change, you know, but, but absolutely, what when businesses get to that point, I mean, many businesses won't be at that point, they'll be thinking about how to pay the bills. But when they get to the point of, of thinking about social responsibility, environmental social responsibility, they will, of course, turn to their trusted advisors, you're right, they say. Well, and of course, there's an opportunity, as there always is in the crisis, for the accounting firm to be of value to the client by saying, we can help. The three magic words. And before that point comes when they get to the point, Martin, the proactive accounting business advisor will be saying, what are you doing about X? Have you thought about the area of Y and bringing up those conversations before it becomes a being an issue? And that will win them a lot of business. The ideal platform for that is the year-end meeting. That is the great way. So when the, the year is closed off, when the results are known, when there's either congratulations or commiserations, we start to look forward from there and say, right, how do we capitalize on this? Or how do we avoid that happening again? And that's where those things come into conversation. You're absolutely right. That's a brilliant news item, Martin. Thank you for that today. I look forward to the next one. Improve.
your practice while decreasing how hard you work to make your firm really fly. Really fly. The Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. And welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to have with me today an old friend, Jeremy Hyman. Good day to you, sir. Hello. How are you doing today, Rob? Splendid, Jeremy. Lovely to have you on the show. Jeremy, there'll be some people listening that may not have come across you and JHA. So just tell us a little bit about how you got into this game and what kind of things you do for accountants. Thank you. Yes. Well, I went to work for a firm of accountants at uh, a very young age and was their IT manager, okay. uh, which I loved. And I obviously was doing something right because I became a partner there. I was uh, 26 at the time. So you're an accountant like a... qualified as well? Well, I trained in law. Okay. I always have got three areas of discipline to bore people with accountancy, <laughs> law and IT. So uh, I was a partner there for about 14 years. And then I left and set up my own business. And it's a consulting business, but I stuck to what I know. And the majority of the clients that I serve with my associates are in fact accountants. Right. Uh, we work for about 20 of the top 60 in the UK. We work with firms of two sizes, medium size and, and large. With the medium firms, we provide a sort of an external CTO function or CIO function, working with their internal delivery teams or with their external providers. And with larger firms, we are non-executive counsel. So firms realize that IT is a huge spend for them yeah. and they like a bit of external governance or advice and we provide that from an independent perspective. Yeah, and we're in uncertain times at the moment. We can't ignore the COVID thing that's going on right now. How have you seen accountants cope with COVID? On the whole, our clients have coped very well indeed. So it came as an initial shock to many of them. And I think it required an agility, which perhaps traditionally accountants are not recognized for. But at the same time, it proved that accountants are way more versatile than they're given credit for. So presented with a problem, they worked out a series of solutions, adopted them and got on with things. It's an interesting point about accountants and agility because they thrive on hard data solid information. They want to make accurate decisions. And we're in times of such unpredictability and uncertainty that everything the accountant would traditionally stand on is like sand, isn't it? I think that's right. But underneath the sand, there's some bedrock as well. Right. And accountants knew that their clients would need advice. And they knew that they are the trusted third party of choice. Mm-hmm. And they knew that they would therefore have a future. So there were some tactical decisions they had to make in order to make sure they could continue to deliver service. But that fundamental relationship with their clients being there to help and being there to advise yeah. they knew was was going to continue in the long term. Now you talked about your clients adapting well and showing some agility. Let's talk about the profession as a whole because not all of the accounting firms out there have the benefit of your guidance. So you've obviously seen examples where firms have not coped well with this. That's right. I mean, I'd love them all to be my clients, but I appreciate that not everyone is enlightened, so that's fine. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the sad truth, I'm afraid, and I see this from some of the, the, the M&A work that's going on is that the firms within the profession that didn't adapt fast enough had a whole load of problems arrive on their doorstep very rapidly Mm. and looked to sell out and to find other firms that were better suited to deal with the exigencies of COVID-19 so they could carry on doing what they do in a different shell. And I've seen quite a few firms do that. And what has stopped firms from adapting to what's happening? Is it an ignorance? Is it an arrogance, a complacency? Those are hard phrases, arrogance and complacency. Well, when I say Uh, arrogance, I simply mean that accountants that uh, they've got an elegant business model, these recurring funds, everybody needs them. There must be a certain complacency in that. I think that there is a complacency in, in the profession, but I think that that complacency has rapidly been eroded over the yeah. past year. There has certainly been a realization. There's been a bit 
of thinning out. There's been some people who've said this is one change beyond the number of changes I was willing to do and I'm off. Mm. All of those things have happened. I don't think accountants are complacent. I think that they are traditional and they are steady and they can't always change. It's not that they don't want to, it's they find it just hard. It's not in their nature. That's why they became accountants. And that's a very diplomatic and fair way of putting it. So when you look at the middle and large accounting firms right now, back in the day, technology was not a major criteria for qualifying and being good at your job. But these days, accountants, they do need to master the tech, the software. They need to know more than 10 in a computer on and off, don't they? They do. And it's going to sound very harsh uh, judgment on many of the vendors in the market. But actually, the problem we have with new recruits into the sector is that the technology that they then encounter is so backward compared to what they're used to. So they come from a very tech-savvy background. They've been through college. They've learned about data analytics. They've learned about a whole range of disciplines that are quite advanced as part of their general tuition. They use their iPad, they use their iPhone, and then they're confronted with a practice management system or a tax calculation system written in the mid-90s and never really updated. Mm. So funnily enough, the, the technology shock for a lot of people coming into their first job in an accountancy firm is the terrible backwardness of it, not the need to learn new skills. And so you're going so far as to say a lot of the technology out there is not fit for purpose. It certainly was fit for purpose. It's yeah. becoming less and less fit for purpose with the passage of time. Yeah. And we know that COVID is accelerating things and the advancement of technology. Yeah, sure. It's pretty fast, but some of these providers are perhaps a little bit entrenched and are not moving as fast as they need to. You used earlier words like arrogance and complacency. Okay. And I'm afraid I see it far more in right. the vendor side of the equation than the consumer side of the equation. There are some entrenched providers who've been there for 20, 30 years, yeah. own vast amounts of market share and are resting on their laurels, really, and not adapting to the new world. So what kind of issues does that present for the accounting professor? I think frustration. You know, I sit around the table with IT professionals within our clients. I talk at conferences. I speak to people. And we're at a position with the traditional vendors where the desire and capability of firms far outstrips the abilities of the software that they are using. Um, so that builds up tremendous frustration. It's the reverse, if you like, of where clients want to be. So these big systems are uh, really quite closed. They are on-premise, they are expensive, and they're commercially inflexible. You know, you sign up for years at a time for a system that you need to be able to flex the amount of users or the capabilities that you get out of it. If they've got a guarded market position, these providers, these vendors, Jeremy, invested interest in the status quo, if you like, how can we go about changing that? The advice that we often give to people that we're working with is where you can go to the general market for a solution used to do so. So for example, practice management, there's nothing special about practice management for an accountant. Right. It's no different than any other professional services organization. Document management, CRM, workflow, automation, these are all at the center of where a firm should be. Right. And there are tremendous general market solutions out there that firms should adopt. And in doing so, that exerts pressure on those industry vendors to catch up. And where is the change being driven from? Is it coming from clients saying we need this? Or is it coming from the accountants saying we need this? Or are some of the vendors pulling their finger out, if you like, and saying, look, we can see where this is going. So we're going to build this for you. There is some of that. There is an appreciation amongst vendors of the need to change. Right. But I tend to see it more in the smaller systems for smaller firms. Bigger firms are still are still under the uh, the cost of those vendors really rather too much. It sounds unfair. It sounds like I'm having a, a vendor bash, which I'm not. The bigger vendors at least are talking about more open architectures, more collaborative approaches to the way that their systems are built. Mm. But in actual terms of that being delivered to the market, it seems to be taking a very long time. Yeah. I was chatting to a podcast guest yesterday who was saying how different things are internationally. He works in the US and he was 
was saying some people still use checks. Yeah. There are a lot of legacy technology providers, aren't there, that are not even yet in the cloud? Yeah, absolutely. And we find that remarkable. But then I think if I looked at the revenue streams as one of those suppliers, I wouldn't be rushing to change it. They are cash cows. They're making a lot of money. Why rush to change that? But we're yeah. certainly at a tipping point. And it's a tipping point that's being informed by general market solutions. Mm. Technologies like Office 365, technologies like the Power Automate platform, which are easily accessed by professionals within firms who are then saying, why can't I do this all across my estate? And that pressure is definitely building up on the legacy vendors to come to the market and deal with it. How good are vendors at talking to each other? I think that they are wary of talking to one another. The desire to own a client is strong and that vendors want a client to buy as much of their suite as they can. Yeah. It's therefore not in their interest to talk to other vendors in the market. That model will change. If, if you look at the general market, uh, Microsoft and an Oracle and a Salesforce, all of whom compete at many levels, all of their software nonetheless integrates with all of their other bits of software. Yeah. So so they've learned that growth comes through openness and collaboration and not through running a closed shop. And Indeed. that must be the way forward. Mm. And one of the features of COVID has been the increased amount of M&A activity consolidation in the accounting market. Have we seen that with the tech providers as well? Yes, we definitely see that. So there have been acquisitions by the large providers of some of the small upcoming providers in order to shortcut their route to market in a cloud world. Yeah. So the firms that you talk to and advise, Jeremy, what kind of problems are they traditionally having that would lead them to say, quick, let's get Jeremy Hyman in here? <laughs> I think the challenges that usually drive people to us are working out how they can have a independent advisor to get them through a particular difficulty. If you look at where most advice comes to accountancy firms in the technology space, it tends to come from vendors, which isn't entirely unbiased. Yeah, they've and, got a vested interest, haven't they? Yeah, and good luck to them. But oftentimes we will start speaking to a firm who say, is this really the right thing to do? You know, IT is a big spend for us and the main advisor are the people we're spending that spend with. Yeah. That doesn't seem right. So quite often it comes from a desire for some independent advice from a, a sort of a credible expert and partners use it to win over other partners. The biggest challenge that most partners face is the fear of failure in the partnership and making a decision which then turns out not to work. So that fear of failure is a tremendous barrier for change. Yeah, that's an interesting point because the higher up you go in an accounting firm, the more accountable you are, the more people are measuring the success of your tenure in revenues and succession and everything else. So there's a lot at stake, isn't there? There is. And if something works, okay, leave well enough alone. Mm. So to be brave enough to make a change that will really deliver a radical improvement to the firm is quite brave. And people come to us because they want to get a bit of power to their elbow and say, we're doing it because we've had independent advice that this is a good path forward and a credible expert can deliver that. And how do you assure them of your independence? Because you must get courted by providers and suppliers and vendors to say, hey, look, you should be recommending us and here's why. You must have some vested interests too, surely. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a straight question, isn't it? Uh, the number of Christmas cards that I don't get from vendors would shock you. Really? Uh, There's no yeah. bottles of malt whiskey in your cupboard? And no, we might send them out to our clients. We never receive them from any of our suppliers. No, we are fiercely independent and sometimes that's to our cost. So yes. I wouldn't say we are the most popular 
popular in the market with some of the vendors, but we just stick to our guns and we have a very clear view of what is right and what is wrong. Mm -hmm. And we are absolute in our mechanism that we are rewarded by our clients for our service and not by suppliers. Yeah. Can you give us an example, Jeremy, without naming names of an accounting firm that made the wrong decision with technology, how much it cost them in terms of culture, reputation, actual money? There's a lot at stake is what I'm getting at. That's a good question. And I have to answer it somewhat guardedly. Where I most often see an error having been made is where a firm has grown, but has not changed its infrastructure or processes or approach to things to reflect its new size. Mm. So they still think as a small firm, even though they've become a big firm. And that can be reflected in procurement, integration, in operating processes. As to the cost of that, it's hard to pull a dollar value to it, but the cost to it normally gets shown in two areas. The first one is the quality and availability of their data, because they can't really get to the information that's being held in silos and in systems that are inappropriate for the size of firm. And second of all, it's evident in the lack of integration. So there is far too much manual operation just to keep the firm running from the ingestion of data from clients through to processing, through to collaboration. It requires an awful lot of touch points from people within the firm, which costs a lot of money and also slows down client service. So I'm not sure I can put a value to it, but accountants listening to this will be able to put their own values to those activities. Yeah. And you talked about firms that are thinking too small or thinking that they are still a small firm. I've had stories too of accounting firms that think they're a big firm. So they invest in some huge technology project like a CRM that is a Rolls Royce for them. And they really only need a little mini or Robin Reliant or something like that. I think there are two themes that that would pick up on from what you say there. First one is that I strongly recommend against monolithic projects. So the gleam in the eye of the CRM salesman (laughs) is to be watched out for with great care. So rather than invest in a vast monolithic solution that will do everything, take it a chunk at a time. By all means, have a framework of where you wish to get to, but then take a little bit of project at the time, prove that it's worth, do another bit and another bit. Second point that I would say in terms of buying too big a system is that quite often accountants have got all the systems they need. They don't need to buy anything at all. What they need to do is use what they have better, use the data that's within those systems more effectively and just make the most of what they already have. And I think quite often it's easier to buy something than it is to use something. And we see that so many times. So rather than invest heavily in a big CRM, look at the data already in your practice management system and use that to drive activity using Microsoft 365 Apple. You bring up a key point, Jeremy. I've just written down the word adoption and it's okay getting the best technology, but if your people are not using it or it's not even easy to use, it doesn't matter how good it is, does it? No. And the organic component of any system is often the least regarded. Users only have a finite capacity for change and systems changing rapidly being rolled out to them without proper engagement and without training and without adoption is just money down the drain. Yeah. I'm thinking of the buying process where the head of digital or head of tech in an accounting firm or you in some ways, if you're advising them, you are sitting down and talking to vendors that they are considering. What kind of questions would you ask a vendor to make them feel uncomfortable, if you like, or establish whether that technology is fit for purpose? Question number one, and it's a barrier, which if they cannot get through it, they don't even get to the first base. So the most important thing is to have an API, an application programming interface and a two-way API. If a vendor tries to offer a solution, if we cannot read and write the data in that system, other than through their own interface, it doesn't get to first base. We wouldn't entertain that. Okay. So the API is first base. What might be a next question or second base? Second base would be the nature of the contractual tie-in. We have little patience for very long-term contractual lock-ins to vendors. 
laws. So traditionally, you might look at service providers insisting on a five-year term. Wow. I mean, five years in technology, it's, <laughs> it's comical. You know, are you using any tech that you had five years ago? Mm. Your monitor, maybe. I mean, that's, yeah. that's probably about it. So we resist strongly commitments beyond a year or two at the very outside of three-year one. And even within that, we negotiate heavily for technology refreshes or contractual refreshes through the term of the contract. Is there anything else beyond that that firms might be thinking of asking? The third one is to explore relevant experience from the vendor. So what have they done before that is a close match to what we're asking them to do now? You want to invest as little time as possible in getting your vendor up to speed in the general language of your firm and allow them to focus rapidly on the specific needs of your project. Yeah, I'm not a technology expert, but one of the things I have seen vendors improving on is their willingness and ability to educate their accounting clients on using the software that they're putting in. So that's a start, isn't it? Again, you have to dig under the surface and make sure that the resources they're bringing into that equation are of a quality suitable. Okay. If you look at your average accountant and they, yeah. they're charging out 100, 200, 300 pounds an hour, maybe four, 500 pounds an hour, mm-hmm. we don't really want to waste their time with a suboptimal trainer or adoption expert. Occasionally, vendors feel having someone labeled as a trainer or a customer success manager is enough. We want to see that they are qualitatively good for the job as well. Yeah. Now, you work internationally, Jeremy. Do you see any differences across different parts of the world in their attitude to technology or indeed the quality of technology that's been offered to their accountants? I think that's a a really interesting question. We do work internationally. Funnily enough, COVID-19 has flattened the world and so many issues that we thought were isolated or geographically limited turn out to be global issues. On reflection, that's a good thing. We've learned a lot more about one another and how similar we are in the challenges and that has allowed us to collaborate more strongly on solving those problems. So you talk to managing partners a lot, Jeremy. What do you sense is their biggest challenge over the next year or two? The biggest challenge is resistance. Resistance from their staff, resistance from their partners, resistance sometimes from clients. And it's having the confidence to believe in a plan and to execute that plan and push it through. It's so easy to be in a a partnership meeting or board meeting where you go in thinking, I've got absolutely the right idea here. Five people agree and the sixth one says, oh, I'm not sure. And then before you know it, the idea has gone out the window. So they need to have the confidence to push that through and the diplomacy, which is not always a quality every managing partner has to bring people with them. Yeah. And why is there that resistance? I think that even in a partnership, there are inevitably vested interests. Everyone's got a particular need that they are trying to satisfy. And the aversion to change that that generates is translated into resistance. It's easier to leave something alone. Even if the process that you're leaving alone is quite bad, people would rather put up with something that isn't that good than go through the pain and effort of changing it. And that translates into resistance. Yeah. I came up with a quote just accidentally a few months ago as I was chairing a panel. And I said, there are too many accounting firms using yesterday's technology to serve today's clients to solve tomorrow's problems. And I was quite proud when I came up with it. But does that sum up where we're at in some ways? I just need to write down that quote and start (laughs) using it liberally. It's an excellent quote. I think that's an excellent summation. And I don't think that's just about technology. I think that's Mm. about attitudes. And you can see it now, you know, when you join now a Zoom call or a Teams call with somebody, the people that are attitudinally stunted find it hard to join the call. The lighting's wrong, the video's wrong, the, the audio is wrong. They think, well, these aren't terribly hard to do. Yeah. So you need to adapt to the times. So you mentioned resistance and diplomacy as being challenges for managing partners. Any of the things you see them struggling with right now that's top of their list? Making the right selections in technology is very difficult for them. They are poorly equipped to make those decisions because their decisions are outside of their expertise. Okay. And where do they turn for that advice? And I know this is 
obviously what I do, but where do they turn for advice about decisions that will have a long-term impact to them? Mm. Picking the right framework, picking the right vendor, picking the right solution are decisions they're going to have to live with for several years and are going to consume a lot of budget. And those decisions, they are sometimes poorly equipped to take. Well, let's come back to budget. What should they be focusing their budgets on for the next two or three years? You've got to paint this in big picture terms. Right. Integration between systems is critical to reduce the amount of re-entry of data and the diminished quality of data that yeah. results from that. The elimination of paper, the absolute elimination of paper. So we were happy with less paper and now we need to be paperless. The appropriate use of automation in the right bits of the firm in the right ways. And most importantly, there should be a budget to help users understand and adopt systems, which is often the poor relation in IT budgets. And yet that is critical. And that goes from having a, an excellent service desk through to having trainers, through to supporting our users in the systems that we give them. And you started to hint there at some of the approaches that successful firms are taking right now. Absolutely. The most successful approach I would say I see from firms at the moment is to see opportunity in change. That is the headline item. They've had change forced upon them at a rate that they haven't seen ever in their professional lives. So the most successful firms are finding opportunity through that. There is a rapid move toward greater collaboration and closeness with clients. And so we're increasing the overlap with clients at a strategic and operational levels. And the near universal move to video calls, funnily enough, has really helped with this. Yeah. People are getting to know one another much better than they ever have before. I don't know how much of a futurist you are, Jeremy, but if you got your crystal ball out right now, what do you see as coming up in technology for accounting firms over the next year or so? Because COVID's not going away anytime soon, is it? No, COVID is not going away anytime soon. I'm going to answer that question maybe in a way that you don't expect me to. We have become a little bit too technology addicted. We are falling into the trap sometimes of seeing technology as a solution for everything. Technology is not that. Technology is an enabler for humans to be the best human they can be, whether that's advising a client, whether it's ringing them up and saying how you're getting along, whether it's just being on the end of a phone and giving great advice. It doesn't matter what it is. But if we put technology at the front of that relationship, we diminish the human component. And I think technology needs to live behind the people, not in front of them. That's a very, very good answer. Very fair answer as well, because people might expect you to be hailing technology as the future and what's going to keep us all going and where we should all be putting our time. But that can be counterproductive. Absolutely. Uh, my favorite bit of technology at the moment is the technology that means I don't have to spend three or four hours commuting in a car or a train. Yeah. I, I never enjoyed that. I might have compensated for that time by working or by enjoying the environment, but it was never a choice. So technology at its very best is not seen and just makes the rest of our lives easier. Yeah. Jeremy, this has been enlightening and very refreshing talking to you today. If people want to find out more about what you're doing and accounting firms are listening and perhaps are going to need your advice, what's a good way for them to get in touch with you? Uh, best thing to do is just come onto the website, jeremyhyman.co.uk, and you'll see a bit of background about us, the work that we do, the associates that I have, and always have to have a chat and share our views. Jeremy, this has been terrific. Would you leave us with some words of encouragement or even advice to the accountants and leaders of accountants listening that want to embrace the technology, they want to do the right thing, but perhaps struggling with a bit of overwhelm, all the decisions that they've got to make. And there is a lot at stake reputation and budget-wise with these decisions. There is. I think that the opportunity provided by the tremendous change that is in the world at the moment is there to be grasped. And professional services firms and accountants in particular are well-placed to do so. Their stock in trade is advice and expertise, which is the most mobile of assets. And the appropriate use of technology and the brave use of technology sometimes is a tremendous way to deliver that asset to a whole range of clients, both near and far. Well said. Jeremy Harmon, that's been world-class. Thank you so much for your time today. Well,
Bob, it's an absolute pleasure. And thank you very much for the opportunity to chat today. So it's our Here's What Works section. This is a practical segment of our daily Accounting Influencers podcast where we pick the brains of Martin Bissett, who's been in this game almost a quarter of a century, telling accounting practitioners how to grow their firms. And uh, Martin, we're looking this week at the whole price issue. We've visited it in various forms, but uh, they say price is only ever an objection in the absence of value. So unpack this a little bit for us. What are you going to talk about today? Yeah, so price sensitivity on this one. So a familiar cry from a practitioner's office is it came down to price. It was only on price. So whether a client stays or leaves, whether a prospect joins or doesn't join, it's purely on price. And, and there is a belief or a myth that uh, accountants tell themselves that there really is only price differentiates in the prospect's minds between them and anyone else. Now, if that is true, then that means that only the cheapest will ever win. And we know that's not right. So here's what works, guys. Here's the insight, first of all. If we have a prospective client or indeed an existing client who decides whether or not to join us, stroke stay with us, based solely on price, and that really is the case in reality, then we have failed to educate their decision-making process. And if they are an existing client, Martin, this could be an upgrade to a more premium service or buying an additional service line, couldn't it? It could be using the firm's wealth management. It could be the migration to the cloud. It could be any number of things that you want the client to do. And if they are truly, and not many are truly based on price alone, but if they are truly based on price alone, then it's us who haven't educated. So think about this. Many will say, many, many firms will tell me that they have lost out on a client due to price. But very few will admit that they won it because they were the cheapest firm. <laughs> So how does that work? You always lose out because somebody was cheaper, but you never won it because you're the cheapest. So how can you ever won clients if you were never the cheapest and it's always the cheapest that wins? That doesn't stack up. So when we demonstrate our impact on their business, the client's business, we're not talking about a commodity purchase of compliance work, which is what a normal accounting sell is. We're talking about an investment made by the client in future lifestyle, in future peace of mind, and in eventual successful exit from that business. That's the point of paying for your firm to come and take place of the existing accountant. You're selling a better future, aren't you, in many respects? You are. It, and almost, depending on how good you are, dear listener, a better now. So not just a better tomorrow, but a better now in that you will take many of the headaches away straight away as the very first things you look at on behalf of working for that client. So as you're about to tell us, here's what works on working with prospects that are buying exclusively on price, we're not trying to turn accounting practitioners into salespeople here, Martin, are we? That's not why they signed up, but they do have a selling, persuading, helping prospects make their mind up role to what they do, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. If you are a rugby fan and you want to buy Sky TV, you look at the price of Sky TV, Sky TV value stacks, and it says to you 31 Premier League games and 115 F1 things, and that may not register with you because you're a rugby fan. You want to know what the rugby is. And then if they say exclusive coverage of your rugby team, that's when you pay the price. That's when price sensitivity goes away because they've hit what it is you wanted. Okay, in the car showroom, and no, I'm not likening accounting to car purchasing, but in the car showroom, 
It's, well, it's got a six-speed deluxe gearbox. I don't care. Well, it's fitted with additional safety features. I don't care. Well, as a single man, it will help you get the woman of your dreams. How much is it? <laughs> so they've hit the reason why you want the car now. And all of a sudden, the price sensitivity has lessened or dissipated altogether. So here's the recommendation on what works, guys. If you want to eradicate price sensitivity from your conversations with clients and prospects alike, make your firm's value proposition to that client or prospect so compelling that price becomes a secondary consideration to your potential client or prospect as a result. Because the what they are going to get outweighs what they've got to do to get it. How do they go about making a proposition so compelling? Obviously, we haven't got the time to go into this in detail, and there's a lot to it, Martin, but a couple of pointers for the accounting practitioners listening. Investigative questions. So many practitioners believe they have to know all the answers, otherwise they will look a fool in front of the client. Not true. You have to know all the questions to ask. You have to know how to unlock. You have to know how to empathize. You have to know how to discover. So basically, the skill is in knowing the questions to ask. How did you feel when that happened? What is the outlook now? What is the consequence of this not happening? How are you planning to go and get that goal over there? What's going to, you know, what's going to impact you on this? What is the, the outlook for three years? And did you think you were going to be here five years ago? And all of those types of questions are what opens up the prospect who generally hasn't been asked those questions before to say, finally, I get to explain why I'm doing this to someone who cares. And when you can do that, you can match your firm's service lines to the needs expressed by the prospect or client. And that's where the compulsion starts to take place. But is that coachable, Martin, or is that an innate curiosity that these accountants and CPAs must have? If you don't care about your client, get out of private practice. There it is. So and here's what works, Martin. Wrap this up. If uh, accounting practitioners are finding that the people that they are talking to are price hunting, looking for a cheap deal, looking for a basic service, what should they do? So price sensitivity is a symptom, not a cause. Okay. So it may be that you've got the wrong type of prospect for your practice and what you want. And it may be that you haven't educated them as to what you can really do for them. It's normally the second one, it's rarely the first one. So when it is that they are priced, they appear to be price sensitive, it means we haven't educated, it means they don't understand just exactly what impact you can have. So ask the questions that open up the needs that allow you to find the solutions. Brilliant, and I would add to that, that natural curiosity, that innate desire to find out where they are right now and where they want to go, that's going to help you. And storytelling, Marty, we've touched on this before, that ability to paint a picture of a better future and even a better now, being able to articulate that as the accountant, that's going to help. It's always a stronger situation if you can point to uh, precedents to say, look, you're not the first person to go through this. Three years ago, we helped so-and-so do that. And, and if you can draw parallels, it's that that's very, very powerful from the practitioner's point of view. But not every firm can do that because they've got to start somewhere. So let's start by caring. Then we win the client. That gives us the evidence, and the evidence can then be leveraged on future opportunities. Love that. That is what works on price sensitivity in your prospects. Have a great day. You're listening to the Accounting Influencers Podcast, cutting through the crap to bring you the very best interviews, insights, and wisdom. 
from the planet's most influential people in the accounting and fintech world. With Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. Welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to have with me today, Bill Reeb and Tommy Berry. We're thrilled to have you on the show. And for the benefit of people listening that haven't come across either of you, would you both give us a little introduction about your background and what you do right now? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Rob. So I was in public practice for 35 years as a CPA and got to the point where I was ready for a change in my career. I've known Bill and our other partner, Dom, for a number of years. And once I had the opportunity to join them and still stay connected to the profession, but in a much different light, then that's what I've been doing the last couple of years and really, really enjoy the work that we do. Sure. We'll dip into that a little bit more. Bill, what's your background and what do you do right now? Well, right now I make things up for a living. So as you'll hear (laughs) shortly, we consult with firms that will range anywhere from a half a million dollars to hundreds of millions of dollars. We have been written up as one of the top 10 most recommended consulting firms for years. We've got multiple books out that help the profession everywhere from succession to how to be a trusted advisor. And what we tell people is there is nothing that goes on in a CPA firm that we're not in the trenches helping them solve. We're not theorists. We actually help firms make all the changes that we'll talk about today. Sure. And Tommy, what kind of shape do you feel the accounting profession is in right now? There's a lot going on, isn't there? Yeah, there is a lot going on domestically and from a global standpoint. And one of the beautiful things about our profession is just its pure resiliency. Whatever is going on around us, we have the ability and have proven that over the years to just reinvent ourselves so that we can remain relevant in the marketplace and we can provide value to our clients, certainly in times like this. Mm. Tommy is on IFAC, which is an international body that works with the global profession. Sure. He's a board member. And when you hear words like reinvent, agility, adaptability, Bill, they're not normally words we associate with accounting folk, are they? Well, we do. Okay. Uh, I can just tell you that there is no profession in the world that is dynamic and diverse as we are. Over half of our profession in the United States, and I think those numbers would prove out globally are in industry or education or government. The other half are in public. And when you consider the fact that as an accounting profession, we have every job imaginable from being CEO to being vice president of manufacturing to marketing director, you name it, we've got CPAs, accountants in that role. So how do you get more diverse than doing any job you want under the license of I'm an accountant? Sure. I get that. It's just that the way accountants bill and price and the exams they do, it's been that way for hundreds of years. So they're not open to changes, one might think. But Tommy, you think they are? Yeah, to some degree, that's what people think of when they think of accountants. That's deserved. But I think oftentimes we get a bad rap. Mm. We are people people. (laughs) Whether we like to admit it or not, we have to deal with people. And the better you are at that, then the better you're going to be at your profession and provide value for those clients. In this environment that we're in now, we've been hearing over and over from managing partners of firms of all sizes that their partners have been telling them for years, we cannot do that. When in fact, they did that in about 48 hours when all of this hit. For example, working remotely and managing that remote workforce. Bill, at 30,000 feet, how do we improve accountability and close competency gaps in development staff in professional firms? The first thing is, for some reason, accountants believe that we are unique in what we do. We are actually not unique in what we do. We follow the same business protocols that almost any would. And we have differences based on the fact that we're a service business, but we have a lot of similarities to every kind of service business. Right. As we start talking with firms and we start going through, how do you become more effective? How do you hold people more accountable? Over and over, we just go back to basics of all business and basics of all business start with accountability. And the, the first beginning point is I need to know who my boss
boss is. Because if I got five people telling me the same thing and I don't have enough time to do it and I'm being told different things by different people, which one do I listen to and which one do I ignore? And the fact is, if all of our people knew the right person to listen to, wouldn't be a problem. But Mm. most of the time, who do you think they listen to? And I'm going to give you two choices. The one that they like the most Mm. or the one that they're scared of the most. So bottom line is we have a lot of people trying to do their best job and they have no idea who to listen to. And it creates a lot of developmental issues. It creates a lot of slow development and competency. And it creates a lot of insecurity of people that shouldn't have it. Tommy, firms are complex, especially the larger firms. There's multiple stakeholders, CPAs, accountants, fairness. They're accountable to a lot of people, aren't they? So this idea of having one boss, does that really work? The problem is they're not accountable to anybody oftentimes. A lot of people are well-meaning. They take a shotgun approach, but they're not systematically and targeted developing their people. Lack of development of people is one of the biggest shortcomings that we find in firms, and it doesn't matter what size the firm is. And the fact that they not only don't know who their boss is, but they're not holding anybody accountable to anything is a real issue. And that's something that we can get our teeth into quite frequently, regardless of the size of the firm. You will always have matrix management. I will have 20 bosses in any given day based on what projects I'm on. The question though is who's responsible for me meeting my goals? Who's responsible for developing me? Who's responsible for ensuring that I am on the right trajectory with my competencies? That is different than what you just said. You just said, hey, how can you do this when you got multiple stakeholders? I know I'm going to be managed by everyone based on the project I work on. But as soon as I have a conflict or I don't know what to do, I know who my boss is to go get it solved. Is it possible to be accountable to different people for different things? For instance, you're accountable to your clients for delivering great service and helping them solve their problem. And so there must be different levels of accountability for different facets of the business. Yeah, I think that's right. That's absolutely right. But at the end of the day, here's where one of the big distinctions is. If Tommy's my boss, which she is, by the way, I think she makes that clear all the time. She has actually named her cat as our CEO to make it clear the job she thinks I do. If I'm his boss, then I should have part of my pay tied to his development. Yeah, I'm accountable to make sure that he's developed. Part of the problem is that I could have three or four people that technically I'm working with on a regular basis, and they all might believe they have some responsibility for me, but no one is being paid to make sure I get there, which means that no one makes it their job to make sure I get there. Under what Tommy just said, if I'm not performing, it reflects on Tommy. And I can tell you our profession is known for what I call the self-starter. I'll do it on my own, get out of my way. And that works for about 20 to 25% of your workforce and you're throwing away 75%. And those are just bad economics. Yeah. And when we talk about development of people, are you talking specifically technical development or the softer skills? It's a comprehensive approach. It includes the technical development, but there's a lot of different competencies. We, in fact, have a tool that encompasses 15 competencies, and it includes what you referred to as soft skills and just being able to manage not only your time, but other people's having the hard conversations with them. Make You're just a well-rounded professional that's going to be valuable to the firm as you progress throughout your career. Historically, when it comes to competencies, most firms have not had strong models in competence. Historically, my generation was if we had 
10 competencies. If I was really good at three, I could be void of seven because what mattered was, were you really good at three? And what we're finding today is that that actually works against a firm because I might be a great business developer, but horrible at leading people. I can't have partners that are half a partner. And so what you end up finding in a lot of firms, you find the business developer on one side and the technician on the other, and they only come together as a whole accountant when they work hand in hand. And we cannot afford to do that. We have to make holistically better people across technical and soft skills. So we know accountants are super smart. They pass very difficult exams and qualifications, but how coachable are they as a breed? Most people are coachable. It's just a matter of how much stomach they have to be coached. And if they're not wanting to be coached, then they're going to be left behind by those that are on the upward track at a much steeper climb. Uh Which is one of the reasons why we simultaneously in all of this tie people's goals to performance. So if I have a partner or a manager that says, I'm not going to fill the role. First off, everybody is not a developmental coach. Um, everyone doesn't have that responsibility. But if and, and so out of the people we have, we ask who wants to do it of the people that are best suited for it. If you are a developmental coach and you don't want to do the job, we will fire you as a developmental coach. You do not have a choice once you've accepted the job. You will either live up to the expectations of developmental coach or we will replace you. It is too important of a job. You don't just get to say, I wanted the title, but I don't want to do the job. Is it possible to rise up in a professional firm without having coaching capabilities? Because as a leader, as a manager, you then naturally come into contact with people and you've got to develop them and bring your team through, haven't you? You know, some of these competencies are more are in people's DNA more than others of them are. So they have an easier time with some of them. But I still think that you've got to have a touch of all of them. You may be better at some than others, but I don't think you could ignore too many of them, quite frankly. Yeah. And I'll go a step further, Rob. The fact is most accountants do not know how to manage people. Most accountants learned from other accountants that did not know how to manage people. They simply bark orders and walk away and hope they get it done. They expect their people to be self-directed and self-motivated. And the point is, part of what we need to do is get better. What worked for us 25 years ago isn't working for us now. And that means that even people that have been leaders for 10 years may not be doing it very well. I agree with that. And here at the Business Development Academy, we train accountants and CPAs to win work. And we say here, our methodology is a little simpler than yours in terms of competencies. But we say the modern day accountant has five core skills. The first is technical skills, which gets you in the game. The second is technological skills. You've got to know your way around the apps and the software and the tech, which is more than turning a computer on and off because you've got to advise clients on that. Beyond that is people skills, which you would wrapple your leadership and management and coaching into that. Then you've got commercial acumen that business acumen, the ability to think like an entrepreneur, to speak into the business's problems. And then finally, it's selling skills, not just selling products and services, but selling yourself and your ideas and your vision. So is that a decent enough framework to say, right, if we develop people along those lines, we're going to do okay? That's a skinny down approach. And I think it covers a lot of them. One of the statistics that came to mind, Rob, as you were talking with regard to technical and other skills, I think it's Kuzis and Posner in their book talks about of the people that are promoted 70% of the time, it's because of their technical skills. Right. But of those that fail, 80% of the time is because they don't have the people skills. So they can't operate in a vacuum. They can't operate in a silo. They have to be working together. So when you go into a professional firm with a view to developing their 
people, you must hit culture problems. For sure. And a lot of people look at it from the standpoint of, I don't have time to develop my people. When in yeah. fact, that's you have to make the time to develop your people. I get that a lot, Tommy, with business development. I don't have time to win business. I'm churning out fees and I'm looking after my own clients and I haven't got time to go out and bring in new business. So you're hitting against, is that culture? Is that personal preference? What is that? Personal preference. Most accountants work beneath their level. They want to be paid for the higher level, but they want to do the job that was easy for them at the lower level. And with every promotion, you take on the agreement that you will develop new skills. Well, if I got more work than I can possibly do, I can easily work down level and be productive and I can do billing. The simple fact is we make money through leverage. We make money by passing work down. And what you just heard was, I don't want to pass the work down. I want to do what's easy and I don't want to do my job, which is what you're outlining I need to do. So by the way, let me hide behind. I just don't have time. No, you just are doing the wrong thing with your time. When we focus with firms, we often put more emphasis, not on billable time, but how they're spending their non-billable time and set goals proportionately to make sure that we're directing them on what they do with that excess time. Personal preferences do become the culture. If you get enough of that and enough traction, I think it does become the culture, Rob. Yeah. And when you work with firms, do you set hard goals, KPIs? You talk about goals, but are these objectives with numbers on them or are these more intangible? The higher you go in a firm, the more they are subjective. The lower you are in a firm, the more they are objective. If you tie a partner level person to all objective goals, that person will manipulate the system all day long to meet numbers and get paid, but it won't do good for the firm. When you're at a high level, it's about tying strategy that you've agreed to back to change management. And so for one partner who is unwilling to delegate, that could be a big function for them goal-wise this coming year. Once we get them to where they've developed a habit of delegating, I'm not going to pay them for delegating the rest of their life. They should have been doing that as part of their job. I'm going to focus my compensation on strategically tying them to the strategy changes we've said we need to make. And if they don't make it, I'm going to put money where our mouth is. And if they don't do it again the next year, I'm going to double that money. And if they don't do it the next year, I'm going to fire them because they will not do their job. And they are trying to get paid at a job much bigger than what they're willing to step in. Tommy, what are are managing partners of CPA firms responsible for? They're responsible for implementing and executing the strategy of the firm that the board altogether sets. They're also responsible for setting the goals of the partners and holding them accountable to those goals and making sure that the compensation system is tied into those goals and whether or not they reach those goals. Those are a few things that they're responsible for. And let's step back a little bit. Bill, can you give me a definition of the word accountability? I know you're big on this and people get that it's answering to someone or something in some way, but just wrap a little bit of meat around that for us. Where accountability starts to me is that the minute I know what's expected of me, then it is now my job to live up to that expectation. Accountability means I can have every single person who works for me know exactly what I expect of them and know what it means to do a good job and be able to go home at the end of every day and say, I did a good job. I don't have to wait for someone to tell me because it's been very made very clear to me what's expected of me and I know that I'm living up to that. Mm-hmm. Accountability isn't the fact that I can catch you doing something wrong. It's not the fact that I want to beat you for doing something wrong. It's not the idea that I get to disrespect you because I have a higher position. It is about allowing the person that's showing up to work enough information that they can drive themselves to that performance that's expected. And if they don't achieve it, have enough feedback along the way for someone to say, you're not making it. We agreed that you'd be here. You're here. Here's what I want to see 
value chain. But Tommy, that seems so straightforward. How can firms get that wrong? The way I would describe accountability is just simply doing what you said that you would do. Doing what you have agreed and said that you would do. It's that simple, really. But you ask a question, Rob, why is that a problem? Because we have cultures that say, you go do your own thing. You self-motivate, we trust you. Well, that works when there's three of us. It works when there's 10 of us. But as you get bigger and bigger and bigger, I need to take all that energy and not let it go like this, where everybody's busting their butt and we're not going anywhere because we get halfway done with everything. And I need to focus that energy on the things that are the most important to us so that we can bring it together for the greatest change. It is a problem too, because if people don't do what they said they were going to do, that's more work on the people that are trying to hold them accountable. And people would just assume, shove it under the rug oftentimes and and go on about their merry way without having to deal with that. And I'm guessing in these crazy times we're in with the pandemic, it's harder to hold people accountable if they're working remotely, working from home, which is why you need these structures, these KPIs in place, however we're going to call it. Yeah, that's right. It takes effort when you see each other every day walking down the hallway, but it takes a lot more effort when you have to check in remotely. People confuse the difference between what we call in this developmental coaching versus HR, because you can talk to anyone that is going to go through their human resource evaluation period. And whoever has got to evaluate their employees, the first thing they do is make a big sigh. Oh God, I got to do evaluations. And then they roll their eyes and then they say, I really haven't been paying attention to them. So I'm now not even sure. And now I need to, in the next week, come up with a year's worth of evaluation. Developmental coaching is about a constant interaction based on where you are and where your goals are. It is not about writing everything to a file. It is, if Tommy's my boss, it is her job to make me better. And if she can't make me better, then she needs to get me out. But it's her job. So now there are two of us working for the same goal. It's my job to make me better and it's her job to make me better. And we know exactly where to go when there's a problem because in the typical firm, all the focus is on me, why I didn't get there, why I'm not making it. Well, I might not be getting there because I got four different people telling me four different things and I'm doing the best I can to try to wade through that. Under this model, I know to go to Tommy, it's Tommy's issue. You need to fix Bill and here's where he needs to be and here's where he needs to go. All of us end up better. Got it. So in the larger firms particularly, what do you feel are the major challenges that they're facing right now? I think all firms are facing the challenge of not developing their people properly and not monitoring them properly, handing things off just to get it off of their plate. And then the person that they're handing it off to may or may not have the skills or the requisite knowledge to do it. They don't get monitored. And then they turn that work back in and it's a mess. So how does that manifest itself then? Is that profitability? The firm's not competitive. It's not growing fast enough and hitting revenue targets? How does that come out? I think it's a combination of things. As far as profitability, a lot of times people will say, it takes me less time. I can do it faster and better if I do it myself, rather than taking more time to train someone else to do it. Yeah. It's a short-term gratification instead of a long-term strategy for them. It's an easy way out, I think. Yeah. And you know what suffers the most? We are efficient, but we're not effective. We put all of our energy in the now and we don't put it in the holistic success of our firm. We don't achieve strategy. We just simply along repeating what we're doing. We have people that load up all their work and then they have no more time and they don't delegate and they don't have anybody trained. So they create bigger and bigger competency gaps, which makes it almost impossible for them to pass work down. We simply get in a mode that makes us more and more likely to work harder, to make the same amount of money, to constantly underutilize our lowest level people because we can't push work down to them because we can't train them and allow us to hide behind our jobs and work at least a level or two below what we're being paid, which ultimately ends up in 
stagnation of a firm's organic growth because people aren't doing their job. Mm. What kind of things are coming up for professional firms over the next 6, 12 months? I think there's going to be continual having to deal with the technology. Bill has said, and I agree with him, that this whole pandemic has moved us forward probably five years, if not more, as far as technology goes, just from the sheer necessity of of having to do that. Some firms are more nimble than others in trying to embrace that technology. And those that don't are going to have even more challenges, I think. Talent continues to be an issue. We're restructuring the exam in the U.S. to try and have at least a broader umbrella with people having broader skills. Look, a lot of firms aren't even hiring CPAs as their primary go-to hires because they need broader skill sets than that. Well, we certainly added to the base of accounting, auditing, tax, and now tech. We expect every CPA coming through to have a tech background, no different than we expected them to have the other components. I think our profession is trying to step back and say, if you look at where we are, we have historically been in the data to information space. We take raw data and we put it out as a tax return or an audit or a financial statement. But as a profession, we need to move to the knowledge and decision space because the data to information space will be taken over by either technology or outsourcing globally. Because at 25 cents on the dollar of what we pay in the US, and I know the economics aren't much different in the UK, you cannot afford to build a business when somebody can undercut you and make money coming in at 25 cents on the dollar. Yeah. So the information space will go away to AI and technology and globalization, which says if we're going to survive, we got to get smart We've got to spend our time at higher levels and higher functions. And by the way, this is no different for a CPA or an accountant in public than it is for an accountant in industry. You take an accountant in industry that basically just says, my job is to get out the monthly financial statements, they will be replaced. It yeah. is no longer that kind of job. And you're talking here about the downgrade and the devalue and the commoditization, if you like, of compliance work, which is easily automated. And we need to be elevating CPAs to that level of trusted advisor where it goes beyond the data. Exactly right. And now more than ever, given where we are now. People are going to emerge from this pandemic in all sorts of shapes. Mm. They may have very little financial resources left. Their model may may be completely wrong post-COVID than pre-COVID. So it's incumbent upon the CPA profession to be in front of their clients on a regular basis, talking about all aspects of their business, not just the debits and the credits, but the strategy, the value of what's going on in their industry and how can you best position yourself or help your client get positioned to move forward at a a much higher level and a much healthier level than they otherwise could be. Yeah, this has been great. I've learned so much already. We're coming to the end of it now. Bill, if people want to reach out to you and have some conversations with you two about the kind of things you could do for them, what's a good way for them to reach you? Well, the best way is they can go to our website at successioninstitute.com and uh, you can look up either one of our names. It'll tie us quickly back to, to the website. And tell me what kind of challenges do firms acknowledge that they're having by the time they pick up the phone to you and talk about health? Usually there's some sort of partner conflict. Right. <laughs> Those are the best points to get involved in. <laughs> and honestly, they'll they'll often say, we're fighting about X. We're fighting about compensation. And by the time we get in there and get to the root of the matter, that's just a symptom. It's not the root cause. So yeah. just recognizing that they need help and then allowing us to come in and help them find out what they need help with, that's our bread and butter. That's our sweet spot. Yeah, sure. This has been terrific. Would you uh, both leave us with a, a bit of advice for the accountants, the CPAs listening, the individuals and 
they might be leaders, they might be at the top of the tree, but what would you say to them about developing themselves and developing their people to cope with what's coming up over the next year or two? Yeah, I would just say, don't settle. I mean, recognize that you are part of the greatest profession there is. There's more versatility in what we can do with our licenses and we can always shift or pivot and maintain our value and relevance. You know, one of the things that people get scared about is we've been paying lip service to the idea that we're going to be trusted advisors. And we've been paying lip service to the fact that we know we need to make certain strategic changes and internal changes, but we've been so successful. Why do it? Why do anything when you're making more money than you ever thought you would? What the pandemic is showing, what technology is doing, what globalization is doing is it's forcing people to recognize that it's time to change. And here's the good news and where I'd like to to leave everybody thinking. Nobody's in a box at this point. Nobody's been left out. If you start to make change, then two or three years from now, there'll be a big difference in the way your firm operates and you'll still be there ahead of the curve. But if you don't do anything and you say, well, Bill, I make so much money. I just simply think you're wrong. It's not a big deal. Then they're going to feel like Thelma and Louise. And I know that's a reference a lot of people won't get, but they're going to be driving along thinking they got a long road ahead and there is a cliff and they're going to wake up and say, what happened to me? And the point is, we're telling you, this is what the world looks like. There are all kinds of signs proving this is what the world looks like. But if you don't want to see it and you want to pretend like I can just do what I've always done and I'll be okay, you're going to find a cliff and you're going to say, how did that happen? And I'm just telling you, it's because you're ignoring looking at the road ahead. Yeah. And you can't help but think that in some accounting firms, there's a certain arrogance, a certain complacency. We have a great business model. We have recurring fees. People need us to stay out of jail. That can inhibit the change you're talking about, can't it? And people have the misconception that what got them here is going to keep them going and it yeah. just won't happen. As the firm gets bigger, they have to change. Yeah. Interestingly enough, firms have changed a great deal. If you look at the services we offered as a profession 10 years ago and the services we offer today, they are so much more expanded and so much more diverse. But we always look back and go, yeah, we're doing the same thing we've always done. <laughs> no, they've been changing and they're going to have to continue to change. It's just yeah. that simple. That's a really great point to finish. Bill Reap, Tommy Barry, that's been terrific. Thank you so much for your insights and your passion today. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Rob. This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. Hey, Rob, quick history lesson for you. Did you know that the first tax records were found etched on ancient clay tablets. Yeah, I've not realized how old you are, Martin, and clay tablets are great though, but they're not exactly compatible with the latest digital tax innovations like making tax digital, are they? No, they're not. People weren't thinking future-proofing back then. But for our listeners, you know, if they're moving clients from similar old school methods to digital records, there is a famously friendly accounting software solution for the UK's smallest businesses. It's funny you should mention that I was a judge at the recent Digital Accountancy Forum Awards, and that was a collection, Martin, of the great and the good in the accounting world, all the top networks, associations, alliances, some of the biggest vendors there. They were big on awards as well. And uh, it just made me think free agent is who you're talking about, isn't it? And they've won a lot of awards for their integrations and platforms about being really easy to use. And uh, clients can use it on mobile or tablet. And not just the clay kind. Rob, where do accountants and bookkeepers go who really want to accelerate their client's journey to the cloud? What would you recommend they do? I'd recommend they go and get a free trial at freeagent.com forward slash tablet. Because once you get into this, you experience it, you see how easy Ooh, it is to use. Okay, there we go. Another Accounting Influencers podcast on another week in a new year for the practices to really benefit from. We started off with a pretty big news item, didn't we, with the Institute of Financial Accountants talking about their 
five biggest challenges that they feel that firms have gotten to grips with last year and are going to profit from this year. And it's a great piece, Martin, that, because when you ask accounting firms what are your biggest challenges, or even the profession generally what's going on, you'll get lots and lots of different answers. But this is some great research out via Accountancy Age, and there's a lot to be going on with there. Some beefy topics, UK-related and the rest of the world. And you were talking to Jeremy Hyman about strategic tech decisions in accounting. Yes, when you invest money in technology, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot of adoption, integration, major capital investment. Jeremy Hyman has been advising professional firms for many, many years and his team on making these right decisions. He did share his best tips with us on what they need to be thinking about. And then you talked about price sensitivity, Martin, and here's what works. We did more than that. We overcame it. Unfortunately, when you don't win a deal, it affects your confidence. And especially if you don't know why you won the deal, you tend to blame the absent party for why you didn't win the deal. And there's so many whinges that come out from practices. Oh, it was because of this. Oh, it was because of that. It was because of that. Wow, wow, wow. And you end up having to call the ambulance for them because there's just too many excuses. The reality is that when you get the price right, you know you've got the value proposition right. What I mean by that is that when someone like me, the potential client, is so excited about how, what you're going to do to help our business grow or survive or reach their ultimate professional aspirations. When you do that, our thinking about the price changes. Our resistance to the price decreases. You know, the more you show that you care, the more we don't realize that the price is there. Okay, so this price sensitivity can be overcome. And this is what we spent the Here's What Works section this week on explaining to you. So take a look at that one and then go back to it again. Yeah, it's a really popular section that one with our accounting practitioner audience. And we finished with an interview with two people. We did a double header with Bill Reeb and Tommy Barry, and we talked about people development tips for growing accounting firms. We looked at the vital role of competences for people development. The problem caused by accounting fear has been technically strong or soft skills strong, but not both. And that is a problem. And what happens to those accountants who are not willing or able to be coached or developed in their firm? So lots of great things for our listeners and leaders in accounting firms to be thinking about. And remember, you can check out our Saturday bonus where we go into the minds, perspectives of the client, Martin, don't we? And we give a, a little view from both sides of the equation on why clients don't buy. Absolutely. Everyone likes a busy bonus. This one is, a, is about when you struggle to close a piece of work. And I know you will tell me you close 95% of everything you ever see. And you do. That's true because it's referrals. And that means they decided to use you before you got involved anyway. So as long as you don't have two heads, we're okay. But what happens when it's proactive? What happens when you actually have to court a prospect? What happens when you have to convince them commercially that their future is served better by you than by staying where they are. That is typically when we find professionals with no formal sales training struggling to close a deal. And in those scenarios, we find that there are problems that can be very, very easily avoided with just simple tweaks to the approach. So not scripts and not spiel and nothing like that, but simply understanding how the process works and not losing control of that process unnecessarily. So when so many firms tell me they struggle to close the deal, I look at how they've handled the situation and that usually brings out what's easily fixed to get it back on track. And that's the bonus this week. Yeah, great. Checking that one on Saturdays. We've got a great series going on. And a final mention to our key commercial partners here, Irish Software Group, trusted by over 120,000 organizations 
from FTSE 100 companies to micro businesses. Thank you to Dex, smarter accounting software, more efficient workflows, 99% accurate data extraction, confidence that your work is compliant. We also thank Practice Ignition, automated proposals, onboarding and payments in one convenient client engagement and commerce platform. Free Agent also, award-winning accounting software for small businesses voted number one in the UK. And uh, Martin, you're big fans of Accountex, aren't you? Europe's definitive event for accounting and fintech and finance professionals. Possibly the biggest show for accountants in the world now and just growing from strength to strength each year. We appreciate you, our commercial partners, and thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in this week, and we'll see you next time. This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett.